Games Podcast for late May 2021. My name is Tom Chick, and I'm not playing Twilight Struggle. And this is Hassan Lopez, and I'm not playing Hoplomachus. <laughs> and this is Mike Pullman, and I'm not playing Pandemic Legacy. Uh, first of all, Hassan Lopez, say that name one more time. <laughs> Hoplomachus. Is that even right? Like, I've seen that written. I would have no idea how to say that out loud. Those well, Greek that's words. Why, that's why I'm ending with a question mark to cover ah. myself. Yeah. <laughs> it could also be Hoplomachus. Hoplomachus? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike, I just found out, and I can't believe I didn't – actually, I can believe I didn't know this because I don't tend to follow these things. But there's a Cold War pandemic legacy out. What? Oh, the oh, I know what you're talking about Pandemic Legacy uh, season yeah. zero, the prequel. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wait, ha- what? Now, why did you also go? Because that was my same reaction too, and I was told that is to go. What? Um, why would you not know that? And, and doesn't that seem exciting? I, I just haven't played it, and my part of my problem is Pandemic Legacy season two. I wasn't real impressed by, so I wasn't in a hurry to get the next one, right. which was but, the but prequel. It's, it's like spies in the Cold War, and it. It might actually make like a different kind of sense than regular pandemic. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm super curious about that. Yep. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know what? Speaking of the Cold War, why don't I start off? Because I'm going to talk about a super fiddly, heavy war game kind of design. Although, you know, is that true? How acquainted are you guys with Twilight Struggle? Um, I would say I'm fairly acquainted. I... I took a deep dive into it about a year ago um, using the the really good Steam app right, and, right. and kind of used that to help myself learn the game and then started watching like videos of, of, of quote-unquote professionals playing and tried to learn the intricacies of it. I think it's a really great game. I really do. Um, it's certainly a classic. Like It's one of those things that you can question whether or not it holds up, but... Um... It's one of those seminal games that even if you don't like it, you should probably play it just to see where design and the industry has come from. Uh, it's a historical curiosity, you might say. Uh, now, I, I feel like it's a little obsoleted by some other designs, but, well, Mike, do you know Twilight Struggle at all? Uh, I know of it. We sell it at the store, but I've never played it. Okay. Um, so, Hassan, did you ever play against someone, or did you play the AI in the digital version? I've played against people a lot, a lot fewer times than against the AI. But yeah, I've played against real people probably like half a dozen times, something, something like that. Right. So uh, Anand Gupta and Jason Matthews are the developers, and their most recent design is now Imperial Struggle, which is a, a sequel slash prequel slash follow up. Um, and while it preserves a lot of the core elements of Twilight Struggle. It, of course, changes dramatically a lot of stuff in Twilight Struggle, a very different setting, of course, as well. Um, and I was just super excited just because I know how classic Twilight Struggle is, and I wanted to see what these guys were going to do to follow up on uh, Twilight Struggle. Uh, unfortunately, this came out right as the pandemic was beginning, so mm. I owned a copy of this for well over, I guess, yeah, probably over a year, Uh without being able to play it, which was super aggravating. Um, <laughs> Tom, did you try to play against yourself, like set it up and run through both sides as best you could? I can't do that, and especially with a game requiring, like like Twilight Struggle and Imperial Struggle are so much about what did my opponent do on the last move, and what do I think he's going to do on his next move, and how do I respond to that? It is so incredibly interactive based on trying to guess what the other person is going to do. I just, I don't see how someone could play it that way. Yeah. Have, have you guys ever done games that way? Like, there's certain games that I just literally, it just, it just doesn't work because I know what cards <laughs> the other side has. I know what the other side is trying to set up. Uh, I, it just doesn't work for me doing that. It's it's such a traditional thing to do in the Grognard Wargamer community, though, right? Is like, it is, yeah. I think it just has its roots in these old six-hour Avalon Hill games that no one <laughs> wanted to play with you, and so you'd play it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and fortunately, I've got a ton of Solitaire board games instead that actually work and that are based around, hey, there's no one else to play a game with. on the so. other side, or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's much harder. It's I, I agree. Like I've never tried 
to even I didn't try even to learn how to play Twilight Struggle that way because it, it immediately I realized that was going to be challenging. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so so what what they do differently here with Imperial Struggle? Of course, it's it's France versus Britain in the 1700s. So the, the setting is obviously very different. Um, and there is that very same gameplay dynamic of what I do on any given turn is generally going I, I want I, I'm torn between setting myself up for something, generally like scoring or a sequence of moves or something, or counteracting what my opponent just did. And that, that fundamental tension makes every turn just a real agonizing choice. Um, and that was the case in Twilight Struggle. That's still very much the case in Imperial Struggle is it's all that kind of reaction. Um, in fact, the catch-up mechanic, and I don't know if this was the case in Twilight Struggle, I don't quite remember, but the catch-up mechanic is whoever has the fewest points gets to decide who goes first. Mm. Generally meaning, Hassan, I would let you go first so that whatever you do, I can react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a plenty big catch-up mechanic. Like, I've played, I've played a couple games now of Imperial Struggle, and every time I kind of prefer to be losing by a little bit in the first half of the game so that I can let the other player go first so that I can react to what he's doing. Um, and that's a big deal in, the, in, the, in terms of uh, the catch-up mechanic. Um, so w- what you also have different with the setting is in Twilight Struggle was based on action points. I had a certain number of action points to grab territories on the board. And then you would use your action points to grab back territories. And we would there would be this push-pull, this kind of tug-of-war. And it very much plugged into the domino theory that uh, about communism and the Cold War. And that if, if, if ideology would spread geographically, uh, which is kind of silly, but that was the thinking back then. And that was what drove the basic gameplay model in Twilight Struggle. Imperial Struggle has a very different approach in that you are spending action points, but it breaks the action points into three different flavors of points, each of which are used in three different systems on the board. Mm. Um, in Twilight Struggle, everything's just an action point. You know, If I want to take over Poland, it's action points. In Imperial Struggle, there are economic points, diplomatic points, and military points. So on any given turn, I could take over Poland, or I could try to grab Polish markets. Actually, Poland's not in the game, but if this were <laughs> Twilight Struggle, I could take over Polish markets, or I could influence, say, Polish labor unions. You know, I would choose, based on the points I was spending, one of those three approaches. And the, the board in Imperial Struggle is this, at first, hugely confusing just threads of different types of spaces. And it, it, it's kind of mind-blowing to look at it, but once you learn the shapes of the spaces correspond to the different flavors of action points, there's this kind of like matrix-like reveal where suddenly all these shapes and lines make sense. Mm. And now the board is this really cool diorama for options and where you can go and what things you can do. And it's fascinating to just look at this board and how they've divided the world up into a playground for England and France to compete with each other. Um, so the, the world is split into the old world. You've got Europe, you've got the Caribbean, you've got India, and of course you've got North America. And you play through the 1700s, and it's you're, you're push-pulling with uh, victory points, and you're spending these different flavors of action points. But something that's, all, that's now missing from Twilight Struggle, which is a core part of Twilight Struggle, and I think something that something some people would miss this in Imperial Struggle. In Twilight Struggle, you had this card play dilemma where the cards that you played to give yourself action points would sometimes have an event that would help the other player. And you would play that, and you would get your action points, but you were kicking off some event that was helpful to the other guy, and that meant that when it's not my turn, Hassan, if you were to take your turn, sometimes you would do something that was super cool and helpful for me because yeah. you had no other cards in your hand. You had to do it. Yeah, um, yeah, and and... And, you know, I mean, I, that system is, is quite brilliant. Like, at first, I think yeah. when, you, when you learn that game, it's kind of frustrating, and you almost feel uh, like it's an unfair mechanism, but the designer's forcing you to hurt yourself. But right. it does so many clever things. Like, for one is it helps the historical narrative actually play out across the game 
in a semi-natural way, right? So, so historical events will will occur um, at times when they're supposed to, and so I kind of like that about it. Gives a nice narrative backbone, and then it also then gives you a certain amount of agency in when you time the playing of those cards, and that turns out to be an extraordinarily uh, crunchy decision. Yeah, and it also just the fact that I have to play a card that hurts me. I know that's a really negative gameplay thing, and I hate that, but it is offset by the fact that I know you're going to have to do the same thing as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're both suffering that same pain. We're both under chafing under the unfairness of that, um, so it kind of balances out. But that's entirely missing in Imperial Struggle. Interesting. And I can see some, some people might feel that Twilight Struggle is a better game for having that dynamic, because there's nothing like that in Imperial Struggle. Well, uh, um, to be frank, there's plenty of games now that have kind of borrowed or stolen that mechanic from yeah. Twilight Struggle, the card-based thing, where sometimes the cards help your opponent. So I don't, I don't think we necessarily need to see that in this, in this sequel, right? I certainly don't miss it, uh, I have to say. Part of what that did is, is it created this um, asymmetry between the two factions. Whereas, you know, the, the West loves NATO, the East loves the, the Warsaw Pact. Like, all yeah. of those things uh, added asymmetry to the different factions. Here, what they do is there's still card play. The card play doesn't happen as frequently. Um, basically, all the stuff that's baked into the deck in Twilight Struggle is dispersed throughout different systems in Imperial Struggle. Mm. Um, rather than being all about the deck of cards, which is another facet of Twilight Struggle that some would consider a strength or a weakness, is you really need to know what's based in that baked into that deck of cards. Here, it's all dispersed in different systems, in different ways. Um, but what they do with the cards is, rather than me playing a card that helps you or helps me, whenever I play a card, it does one thing for England and something different for France. And mm. it's all it's written on the card, um, and they do the same. They do the same thing, Hassan, with those historical beats. Uh, is a historical beat might play out on a card, but it'll do one thing if France plays it, and something else if England plays it. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, for example, and this, this is just also I love the historical richness. I love the research that these guys do. I love how they ex how they explore different uh, smaller corners of history. Uh, there's a card in here, and this will invariably give someone pause when they draw this card and look at it. It's called The War of Jenkins' Ear. <laughs> and I don't know of anybody, I'm sure some people who really know history have maybe heard of it. I had no idea what it was. It's a weird name for a card. It shows a cool naval battle in the picture. And you're like, what? What is The War of Jenkins' Ear? So you look it up in their little playbook, and it was an ill-fated British expedition against Spain in the Caribbean. Uh, they they sailed a, a navy out. They fought Spain. Uh, one of their ships was captured. One of their officers was humiliated when his ear was cut off by the Spanish. Um, <laughs> so that's what happened. Uh, the British Navy got chased out of the Caribbean. They actually had to sail the wrong way around the world to get home. Um, so they were kind of disgraced. But on the way back, they managed to ambush a Spanish treasure fleet. So they were disgraced in battle, but they came home with a ton of gold. So <laughs> when you play this War of Jenkins' Ear, if you're the English, it focuses on the fact that, hey, you made a ton of gold. This is great. You know, get extra money. If you're the French and you play this, it focuses on the fact that, hey, dummy, you lost a battle to Spain in the Caribbean. Now you lose one of your Caribbean holds, holdings. Mm. Um, so they're, they're very – just all this historical detail – and that might never come up in a game, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. But I just love the historical detail and how it's different for each faction. Um, they also have uh, – with all of the different systems that are being interacted with with different flavors, flavors of action points, um, just all these special powers that were in the deck now, sometimes you get them by capturing specific points on the board. And there's a tile sitting on the board waiting for you to claim it when you capture that point. And when you capture the point and grab the tile, the tile now gives you like a special ability. It's almost like a spell power or something. It's something you can do on your turn. You use the tile, and it gives you the unique, a unique power that you wouldn't have if you didn't control this piece of the board. Um, for instance, the Strait of Gibraltar. You know, neither France nor England occupied the Strait of Gibraltar. That's just not something that's in the scope of the game. You're not going to grab that piece of territory. But 
you can sort of win control of it through Spain. And if you do that by spending political points um, and, and grabbing it, you now have extra naval power that you can use anywhere on the board. Like that's a super powerful thing to grab onto. Uh, it's not a card, but it is a special tile that you'll win. If you cozy up with uh, the Iroquois, you get their uh, raiding tile that you can use to attack anywhere in North America. Um, you can grab um, trade in the Baltics. You know, you spend political points up there, and now you've got extra money. It's not a card; it's a tile that you grab. And if, if Hassan, if I don't want you to have that anymore, I can go uh, take it away from you by grabbing that territory from you. Mm -hmm. So, all the things that were in cards in Twilight Struggle, I just love how they're dispersed into different systems in Imperial Struggle. So, uh, I've played it a couple of times. I played it once on Vassal, which I just cannot stomach. Vassal's just way too fiddly for me. <laughs> yeah, um, that site yeah. is so old. It is so like it's just it's, it's a worst case scenario for like a gameplay interface and it, mm -hmm. it's actually a testament to how much i wanted to play this that i did try to play it on vassal um <laughs> so and 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 how would you rate its complexity compared to twilight struggle like is this a game that's similar weight and you and requires a similar time commitment to learn its various you know systems i think heavier um mm -hmm. just because of the different kinds of action points uh, now, it looks super complicated when you first sit down to play it, but once things click, it gets relatively easy to actually interact with. But what's heavier is the fact that all these different things are dispersed through these advantage tiles, through different cards, there are different types of cards, the different types of spaces. Um, so I think I would actually say it's a little more complex than uh, Twilight Struggle. And it certainly does take a long time. Uh, the few times I've played it, it's been like a, a six-hour game. Mm. Like, it's pretty much you play that all day or nothing mm -hmm. else. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I've always been kind of – I mean, this is kind of a side topic, but I've always been intrigued by how um, popular, in a sense, Twilight Struggle is for a game that is that dense and time-consuming. The fact that, it, for example, it was, you know, number one on BGG for, for years yeah. and years and years just struck me as kind of absurd, especially yeah. when I when I picked it up and tried to learn it. I was like, how the fuck did this game get to be number one? Like, <laughs> it's it's only for two players. It's really hard to learn. It's it's a historical theme that I find interesting, but not necessarily everybody's going to find interesting. I mean, do you think um, Imperial Struggle will achieve a similar level of popularity or notoriety and uh, i'm assuming that the times have changed enough that it won't yeah um because that was the weird thing about twilight struggle being number one for so long like agricola i can understand even tigris and euphrates sure that makes sense um but yeah twilight struggle i think was a a, a, a historical curiosity whose time has come and gone in terms of being that popular because um, yeah. this is a big heavy expensive hard to learn GMT game, yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I just can't see it achieving that level. For GMT, I, I imagine it'll be hugely popular, um, but as far as just how it, it, its role in the overall industry, I can't imagine it reaching the level of, of Twilight Struggle. However, I will say, uh, mm -hmm. as far as how strong the design is, I think it should. Like, I think it's every bit as good as Twilight Struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and better, really, because Twilight Struggle, I, I've said this before, I... In the, the, a D6 deciding something right. should never be an element in, in a <laughs> right. good game. Right, uh, right. That, that is entirely and that, missing, by the way. And that D6 can kick your ass in Twilight Struggle. Like it, it can, just, it can yeah. just fuck you. Um, it really can. It really can. And there, there is, there are elements of that that are kind of as random in Imperial Struggle. But the point isn't to make you fail something. It's to keep you from putting all your eggs in one basket. So, <laughs> so for instance, just a real quick, and I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, and this is one of my friends I played with, a guy named Bruce Garrick, who, who loves these sorts of games. I think this was his main complaint about it is in, in Twilight Struggle, you get these scoring cards and you know that like Europe is always going to be a ton of points, whereas Latin America is not so many points. Like all that's kind of hard coded and you plan on it. Um, there's some of that kind of scoring in Imperial Struggle, but it's randomized from turn to turn. Mm. You never know on any given turn is Europe going to be super important 
or is North America going to be super important? You never know, for instance, because uh, there's, there's a huge economic element. Uh, will furs be really valuable in this game, or will there never be a global demand for fur? So therefore, all the hard work I've done as France grabbing that fur trade in Canada never pays off. Like, that's randomized. But rather than being screwed by a D6, I think what's going on in Imperial Struggle is that it's saying, always be ready to respond to the moment. Don't just go heavy on furs. Mm -hmm. You know, as France, you need to be prepared to grab Canada. But if you're just like, yeah, whatever, I'm going to go all in on Canada, it may not pay off. Um, like, it's all about setting up. It, it's all about being flexible in your setup and being able to respond to the demands of an, any given turn. All of that is random. You might go a whole game in India, and it's cotton and it's spice. Those are goods unique to India. They might never be worth points, which means it would be foolish if you pursued a lot in India. You don't just preemptively say, yeah, I'm England. I'm going all in on India. You wait and you see what random points are going to come up, and then you respond. Right. Um, Right. So it's not a D6, but it's crazily random. And, uh, you know, one of the games I was playing with my friend, it was his first time, and he's really good at these games, but he had no way of knowing that in advance. I just got super lucky, and India kept coming up, and he didn't care about India. Uh, and if he'd <laughs> played this before, he would have known, I might have to care about India. I might not, but I might have to. Right. Um, Right. So. I mean, that that kind of I guess I, I mean, yeah, that kind of randomness is is what leads to, you know, different different game experiences, you know, playing out, you know, yeah. in, in unique ways. And that's that's the joy of a game like that. And it's it's always interesting to me to to listen to how people respond to to that kind of randomness in a design, whether they find it frustrating or engaging or whether they're OK with it or not. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because it is playing a purpose, obviously. And and especially too when in a in a game that lasts you know six hours. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I play five hours of a game and I'm banking on that last hour on you know the American Revolution to be worth a ton of points and it doesn't come up, well, don't I feel silly? Uh, but <laughs> I shouldn't have been spending those five hours investing in the American Revolution when I didn't know if it was going to come up. Uh, mm -hmm. right. so. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so uh, Imperial Struggle, uh, you guys come on over. I'll, I'll, I can teach it in an hour. Then it's six <laughs> hours to play. It's, uh, we'll take an hour break for lunch. Uh, I should have you home by 11 p.m. <laughs> as long as we start at 9 a.m. Though, yeah. So. It's great. It's, it's planet. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mike, what are you playing? Something lighter, I hope. Yes. So I am playing uh, Corey Koneska's newest game called The Initiative. Um, Corey is speaking of other words I don't know how to pronounce. Uh, I I just looked it up on Board Game Geek. <laughs> very good. Okay. You you so, pulled that off very convincingly. Good. Thank you. Um, so real, real uh, quick, what do you know him as? Um, I know him as basically the the FFG guy, right? He did ah, okay. Eldritch Horror, and I think he did Star Wars Rebellion, and he's is done. He Battlestar Galactica. Yep, that's him yeah, too. Yeah, that's how I think of him. As I see that name, and I immediately think Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. I just I associate it more with the brand of uh, fantasy. Yeah. like he was on everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so this is definitely a lighter game. Um, I don't know if I'd consider it a legacy game or not, but it is a connected campaign story wise, um, and it's an interesting frame story. You were supposedly playing as 1994 era teenagers who find this board game at a uh, garage sale. And then you start playing the game, and then you start finding out weird things, and the characters start getting followed by shadowy people in cars, and there's some sort of deeper meaning to the game you're trying to exploring with the characters as you go through. So the one of the manuals that comes with it is this comic book, and you read uh, you know one or two pages before and after every mission, and then it has uh, a branching structure where if you won this, go to this page, and that kind of thing. Um, the base game is it's on a double-sided board. Uh, it's got uh, 16 rooms on it, and you play these spies going around trying to get uh, intelligence to solve a cipher. So one of the components is this kind of Wheel of Fortune-looking plastic thing where you slide a card into, and it's got all these symbols that represent letters, uh, a la cryptography. And as you find the clues, you start flipping these little uh, windows, and they start revealing letters. And by the end of the game, you're trying to figure out what phrase is hidden there through finding these clues. Um, and then the, the base mechanic 
uh, get intel on uh, evidence or to actually pick up evidence. And then you're, in your hand, you have cards. All they are, they have different symbols or different colors of symbols, like walkie-talkie and uh, binoculars and stuff. And they have numbers that are ascending. And on each of these spots, gather intel, etc., they start out at zero. And to be able to take that action, you have to play a card higher than the card that was played there previously. So uh, you're not allowed to talk. Or you're not allowed mm-hmm. to talk, but not allowed to tell the other players what you have. Like, I can't say, I have a five, so I'm not going to go here because we're only at one. So there's a little bit of... You can, I don't know if you guys have played Shadows over Camelot, where you can kind of have that vague talk of, I right. could do this next turn, but I can't specifically say what number I'm going to do. I'll just, I'll just put myself out there as, as not being a fan of games that do this. Like, I, yeah. I just, I, because people will, do, they, it, it just doesn't draw a, a strong enough line in the sand. So people will start hinting at the very specific shit that they have in their hands. So I'm always yep. like, well, like, let's just all look and see what we have in our hands. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I am the same as you, Hassan. Hassan, my idea of hell is being uh, locked into a room with no game to play other than the mind. (laughs) (laughs) That one you well, that one you can't talk at all. This one you can at least you know plan. Just not talk about right. There's some theming at least in in initiative, right? Right. Um, So you're moving around uh, this this room. It's not very big, like I said, 16 rooms, Uh, and you pick up. uh, You start looking for clues. And some of them are symbols. You flip them over, and that means you can, on your uh, little Wheel of Fortune-looking thing, flip up the corresponding symbol and start revealing letters. Sometimes there's traps. There might be a camera that makes you uh, have to discard a card every round if you're sitting there in the camera. There might be uh, poisonous gas uh, that makes you lose one of your actions. Um, you get two actions each turn. And then as you go around and these four, these four stacks of uh, gather, intel, etc., fill up, you start being unable to do anything because... The number currently sitting on gather is ah, 12, right. and I right. only have a 1. Uh, and then some of the traps actually are false evidence, and they lock one of the actions. For example, you might not be able to pick up any evidence until you clear that out. Hmm. Um, and then so you how do, do that I clear through... it out? How do I get Hassan's stinky 12 out of the stack? <laughs> so one of the four actions is called regroup, and that lets you clear out one of the other three actions entirely. So you can remove a lock hmm. as well as all the stack of cards on it. Mm-hmm. What you can never do is clear out the regroup. So once that is up to 10 or so, you're you're kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, That's uh, once, your clock, basically. Yeah. Yep. And once you get through the deck of cards, every time um, you have four cards in your hand, at the end of each turn you draw back up to four, and that's compulsory at first. Once the, car, uh, the deck runs out, you shuffle on these time cards, and you do it a second time. And from that point on, anytime someone draws a time card, you have to play it immediately. And if you get four of those symbols before you solve the puzzle, the game's over. Mm. So the first half of the game, there's there's no real timer other than the impending timer starting halfway through. So um, you keep repeating this, pick up clues, solve the puzzle. Um, and then I've only played the first mission so far. So this I wanted to bring this up, which is, what do you guys think of games where you really don't see the whole game until you played... Right. 10 sessions. Yeah, yeah. It was like all of this stuff is like hidden further into that that comic book or something. All these cool dynamics. Right. And yeah. there's there's a whole deck of secret cards and it says, you know, at the end of this one plot card 27. And it start they start layering in new rules and there's all these tokens I haven't used yet and so on. I mean, uh, my first reaction to stuff like that, Mike, and I imagine you guys are the same way is, "Whoa, this is going to be cool." Uh, right. But then like it I mean, the thing is, unless the game is good enough up front, I'm never going to see that 10th mission. Yeah, um, right. And the, this is, the, it plays very quick. I think we got done in 25 minutes. So mm-hmm. this is one I think I'm, I'm going to, we're going to play through several just so I can kind of see how it develops. Um, I now, think real the, quick, Mike, yeah. why didn't you guys immediately go on and then play the next mission? It was just a matter of time. We played a okay. quick round, and I was hoping to get one played, another one played before uh, the podcast, but I didn't get a chance. But it wasn't like everyone was like, yeah, I don't want to play this anymore. No, no. Okay. We, we thought it was fun, and we're like, hey, that was kind of easy. I wonder when it's going to get complicated, because yeah, yeah. you know, I have this whole pile of tokens I haven't used with you know laser tripwires and all sorts of stuff. So I'm expecting it to get uh, uh, more complicated as time goes. I will say, uh, just, to, just to your point there, Mike, I, <laughs> I talked, uh, I think it was it last episode, about a, a game called Paleo, um, <laughs> which has a similar situation where you start with super easy modules, and there are all these later modules with little cards that say, hey, don't look in here, it'll spoil a surprise. Um, yep. But then the later modules, uh, 
Like, I, I liked Paleo up front, and the later modules have just made me like it even more and more and more. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. in a way, kind of sad that people who only played the first two scenarios don't see some of the cool stuff that it's going to do later on with these gameplay systems. Yeah. Um, so, but cool, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean about that dilemma. And, and the reason I brought up uh, Pandemic Legacy at the beginning is it was very similar, at least the first right. season, where it started adding all these rules as the months went on, and it was barely the same game by the time you finished yeah. Um, but I wouldn't quite call this a legacy game. There's one permanent change you make to the game that I can already see coming. Um, Wait, but beyond what, is, that, was it a spoiler if you tell us what that is? I don't. It, it's people have been trying to not mention it, so I won't. I won't say it in the podcast for now. Interesting. Or no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I kind of figured it out after I opened the box. Um, uh, but after you get through the campaign, which I think is around 20 missions, they include 24 play-in-any-order random missions you can do after the fact. So it's still mm. a complete game after the fact, You go th- you know, after you go through the campaign, which I appreciate. But you're not altering the board, you're not, you know, writing stuff on it, you're not tearing up cards. So I don't know if right. I'd quite call it a legacy, but it's... It's modular. It's like super modular with a campaign in it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing more, but uh, I can't give you a complete view, but... I don't know if I could anyway without spoiling it. So, Do you guys know of a game, and I don't know how big of a deal this was. I don't know if we've ever talked about it. Uh, it's a game that I will – I keep wanting to call it Spy Party, but it's not Spy Party. It's Spy Club. Spy Party is a, a video game. Spy Club is a board game. Do you guys know Spy Club at all? Not at all. So Spy Club is very much in, – in tone, it sounds similar to The Initiative in that it's got a very sort of a Scooby-Doo vibe to it. Mm-hmm. It's like kids solving a mystery. And really, it's just a very simple color pattern matching scheme. But with Spy Club, um, you play one game of it, and then you reveal uh, like who the suspect is. Then, in order to reveal the, I guess, like, the, it's not, it's, they're not murders. It's a very family-friendly game. The crimes are things like somebody stole candy from the candy store or somebody didn't go to school today. Like, yeah, the, so the you discover the very high. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah the low stakes on this one. Uh, you discover the, the criminal, the, the scene of the crime, and the, the item that was the subject of the crime or whatever. Um, but you do that over successive games. And depending on what you solve, you then look up in the book something that fundamentally changes the gameplay dynamics. Um, it's still very much cards being matched to other cards, but it introduces really crazy and dramatic shifts uh, that have some thematic representation of the crime that you're uncovering. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like almost infinitely playable because any one of these modules, and there's probably literally you know, 50 of them in the game could kick in at any time while you're solving this one crime, which consists of multiple matches. Um, but it, it, has, it, it has a very sort of a playful, family-friendly vibe to it, and I think the initiative does as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah this is definitely one that would be friendly for, say, 10-year-old kids. They could easily right. play this. Now, because of the lack of communication, which, by the way, not in Spy Club. I can play Spy Club Solitaire just fine. I presume <laughs> I can't play the initiative Solitaire, correct? Uh, I think don't know if it actually supports single. Oh, it actually does. I'm curious how they do that, though. I mean, because if I'm uh. just like looking at all the different cards, which is what Hassan and I would do, mm-hmm. uh, then I'm just like optimizing <laughs> when characters do different things. Yeah. Yep. So I would probably just win. <laughs> I mean, you still have the ultimate. You know, you're still limited by number of actions and the timer mechanism. Right. But I'm trying. I don't know if that would be any different difficulty-wise with less players. Okay. Uh, officially, it says it supports one. Mm-hmm. And 42% of people on Board Game Geek says that's best, Tom. <laughs> now, is that higher or lower than most games that support one player, I wonder? I the second place for best is four players, so I don't, <laughs> I don't right. know. Uh, what is one of the... Uh, like, what, what can you tell us about uh, this magical board game that they find that might be a minor spoiler? Like, what did you discover in the first mission? Um, so... All that was was the you know the message revealed to be that someone's watching them play is what it appears. Mm. But that's all I really know so far. Creepy. Creepy. Some yeah. like uh, the result was a, another clue and kind of a we know where you are kind of thing. Oh shit! Yeah. Yep. Oh, I, I hope I hope that like Lovecraftian horrors get involved. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it looks more like uh, more cloak and daggery. Right. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah, looking at the box now, there is literally a guy with, like, a, a cloak and a hat, like a spy outline on, on the cover. Yeah, so. Uh, all right, the initiative. Give us, oh, I forgot to mention each character yes. of the four characters has a, has a special power that you can do. Like, one of them lets you clear traps or uh, move better. further and those kinds of things. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, and give us the designer's name one more time because I like hearing this. Corey Koneska. All right, actually Koneska is like way easier than I would have guessed. I always try to make it sound more tortured and multisyllabic when I try to say it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On his uh, board game geek page, it actually says FAQ. How do you pronounce your name? So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Hassan, what do you have played? Hey, Hassan, you're playing by something. I know how to pronounce this guy's name. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about Unmatched, um, which is a couple years old now. So this is not a brand new release, but it's it, they're they're pumping out new expansions for this all the time. Uh, this is by Restoration Games. Um, it's actually a collaboration with Mondo as well. And if people know Mondo, they they do a lot of really beautiful art design, graphic design stuff, and I think that's actually where the the vibrant art design in this game comes from is that collaboration um the designers rob davio there's another guy as well justin jacobson i don't want to sh- shaft him by just mentioning davio um but unmatched is a remake of an old game that i definitely haven't oh. played i don't know if you guys have um star wars epic duels this is like one of those what? holy grail games that people always talk about i had no, no idea about this okay me either <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a, it was a game that uh, I'm gonna look it up right now since I got it available. Yeah, it came out in 2002. Um, I think during the, the the prequel movies at some point. And oh my god, I'm looking at this too. It's a Milton Bradley. This is the sort of thing you would find in Target. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, wow. And it it became quite popular. Like people really liked it. Like it was a game where you could see who would win between Darth Maul and Darth Vader, right? Or <laughs> But it, it was it was the idea of you know like any two characters within the Star Wars universe you pit them against each other in a in a one v one tactical skirmish game, and that's that's what Unmatched is. Unmatched is a reboot and a really nice repainting of this design um, with a lot more modern sensibilities. But it is still a one v one tactical skirmish game where you're going to pit kind of totally random uh, characters, heroes of myth and legend and literature against one another. So, for example, the base set comes with uh, King Arthur, Medusa, Alice, and Sinbad, the sailor. And, um, I mean, I think some people have noted that that the cast feels a little weird and random, in part because I think they were trying to get free free things right so um stuff that they wouldn't have to pay money for the rights to, to right. use yeah public domain is a is a hell of a thing yeah no telling what you're going <laughs> to yep. end up with yeah. yeah yeah um but their their collaboration with mondo and i think mondo has owns ip and some pretty intense stuff so so yeah they have now access to things like buffy and jurassic park and i think they're expanding into the marvel universe now which is going to ruin it and there's oh. there's going to be a whole bunch of shit so isn't uh, like one of the characters in the Jurassic Park like you play as raptors? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so, so wait, I could play raptors versus Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's right. That's right. And it, and what you just said, Tom, is is really a big part of the appeal of this game, and it definitely tugs at my heartstrings. Like I'm a sucker for that. It's like let's just pick you know Sherlock Holmes versus Medusa. Like what the fuck, you know? Like let's see who would win in a fight. Um, so it feels like a weird reality TV show like that. And I, I like that part of the game a lot. And I do think that that's where the the buy-in comes from. Like, the, the more you collect, the more of these weird combos you can you can play out against each right. other. Um, now, having never played Star Wars Epic Duels, what kind of game am I playing when I'm pitting Alice in Wonderland against uh, <laughs> a T-Rex? It, it, this is a game that the other sort of, pitch i would say that this is like there's like two parts to the pitch of unmatched and one one half of the pitch is crazy characters fighting each other and the other the other half of the pitch is that it's a really simple easy game to play like this is not a deep game people have to be ready for that um don't expect a heavy tactical miniatures game with lots of rules about hiding and cover um 
and special unique abilities that trigger under certain conditions. This is a game that's that's really it's it's designed to be able to teach to an eight year old or a nine year old and and to jump into a game within five minutes right. and and to play it out in twenty minutes, twenty to thirty minutes. And th- there is a lot of value in that nowadays, absolutely. So. Um, the the rules really you can explain to someone in in about five minutes. It's it's very much a card game, a hand management game. You have okay. each hero comes with its own unique deck of cards that are going to give them some some tricks that that they can do that other characters can't. And the cards that you have in your hand will determine the the strength of the actions that you're going to be able to take on your turn. In terms of your turn, it's very easy. You you're always going to get two actions. One of those actions can be to do what's called a maneuver, which is you're going to take your little mini um, and you're going to move it around on the map. And I should say that the the maps in this game are very small and quite abstract. And I'm going to come back to the maps in a second because it's one of my criticisms of the game. Um, But you're basically going to be moving your miniature a certain number of spaces on this map. Each hero has a certain number of movement points. So it's a very simple, straightforward system. The the other nice thing about the maneuver action is that it also lets you draw a card. And you're going to be doing that a lot. In fact, I would say the majority of your turns in this game, one of your actions you're going to take, you're going to maneuver because it's going to let you move your units around and it's going to give you another card. You never want to be in a position in this game where you have zero cards in your hand. If you have zero cards in your hand, you're extraordinarily vulnerable. Um, the other sort of big fundamental action you can take, of course, is to attack. And the goal in the game, it's a very simple goal, is to knock the opponent's hero, their primary character. They might have some sidekicks on the board with them. Those don't matter when it comes to victory conditions. Your goal is to knock the the primary opponent to zero hit points, basically. And so you will often be focusing your attacks on that, that unit. So for example... King Arthur comes with Merlin. Merlin's his sidekick. And Merlin's pretty tough. He's going to fling spells at you and cause problems. But your goal is to is to kill King Arthur, to knock him down to zero. Um, when, you, when you attack a character, you're going to use a card in your hand. It has to be an attack card, and it has to be a card linked to the, the character that you want to attack with. So if I wanted to attack with Medusa, I'd have to have a card in my head that was an attack card that, that also has Medusa on it. Um, the attacks can either be melee or ranged. That depends on which hero you're playing. So again, King Arthur is a melee character, Medusa is a ranged character. And ranged attacks in this game are actually very straightforward. The line of sight shit has been simplified and abstracted down in a very simple, clever way. The map is basically broken down into different colored areas. And if you're in the same colored area as another unit, you can do a a ranged attack against them. So there's none of this bullshit that happens in complex tactical minis games where you're trying to see if a tree is blocking your line of sight or (laughs) people are pulling out rulers and and pushing things by mistake and all this shit. So it's, it's a very simple system. Um, now you guys talk about rulers. Do you? Does either of you own a laser pointer that lets you draw a line? <laughs> I'm not even joking, because I sure sure do. You guys don't have that. No, definitely no. not. How was, then do you measure line of sight from one square to another in an elaborate tactical game? Well, I don't. I don't play those games. So I, I think the most elaborate tactical game I play is like the Star Wars um, game, and that comes with those cool rulers, Tom. That's all I need. Good. Okay, the rulers work as well. Yeah. We we used to use these little toy periscopes that you turn upside down, so you can kind of see what your <laughs> what your guys see. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. That is that's so way nerdy. cooler than my laser yeah, pointer that's, thing. That's, nice. This is the height of nerd cool when when you're pulling shit out like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so you've got so go ahead. So you've got this card play. Uh, you're punching each other's hit points away. Yep. Um, yep. And the attacks are the attacks are have a fun. I'm not sure if I'd call it a bluffing element, but there is there's a little bit of, of uncertainty um, when it comes to these attacks. So let's say I was attacking Mike and I'm playing King Arthur. He's playing Alice, let's say. Right. So I put down an attack card. I have to play mine face down. And then Mike now has a decision as the defender whether he wants to play a defense card from his hand. Now, he might not have any defense cards and that would be bad. Um but let's say he has one, so he plays it face down. 
then we re- then we flip them over and we resolve them. It's a very simple compare my attack. But there is some cleverness in there. Like, for example, if I think Mike's holding on to a good defense card, I can try to tease it out of him with an initial attack, which is one of my weaker attack cards, and then follow it up with a stronger attack and hope that for my second attack, he doesn't have a good defense card. Um, the other uh, the other sort of you know clever thing you can do is you know you can kind of dance around the other player and maneuver and try to set up this 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 opportunity where you suddenly have um, you know that they don't have any defense in their hand. So right. for example, Mike maybe um, decides to go really hard at me and he attacks twice in a row rather than doing any maneuver action on his turn. So he just attacks me twice, but now his hand is empty. Well, now I know, for example, that he there's no way he can defend. And I, th- I think it's situations like those where unmatched is at its best. Um, and they're, 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 they're going to occur in almost every game. I think that there are points in every game you play of unmatched where something kind of interesting and exciting like that happens. Um, some clever guesswork that you're doing, something that makes you feel uh, tactical and strategic, um, a, a point at which you're like, oh shit, I just made a mistake. Um, but there's also there's also some problems with the design which we can we can talk about too. So real quick, Hassan, this reminds me a lot. Do you know Martin Wallace's Wildlands at all? I do a little bit. I, that's a game that I played once and and have not and I have not played since. But I, I agree that it's got some it's got some similarities to it. Yeah, the whole the whole interactivity in Wildlands, which. Um... It isn't something that's immediately surfaced. Like, it's something that you appreciate the more you play it. But Wildlands has a similar back and forth where it's my turn. I'm moving my units. Um, I might attack you. Um, at the end of my turn, I drop to seven cards. So those are the cards that I have when you're taking your turn. However, when you're taking your turn, I can play an interrupt card. Right. And what that does is it burns the card but then it means it's now my turn for as long as I want it to be. Um, so I'm basically claiming the initiative from you, and now I've got this hand of cards that I'm playing from, but these are also the cards I would use to defend against your attack. Right. So yep. in addition to using yep. these cards when you attack me, I might I have some cards that just completely seize the initiative from you and then let me muscle in there and take a turn for a while, for as long as I want, but then I'm out of the cards I would use to defend. Um, it's really good back and forth instead of I go, you go, I go, you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, that hand management thing is very similar. Like it's kind of like you're waiting for those good opportunities to, to smash somebody. And, but if you guess wrong and you empty your hand and it turns out that they actually did have some good defense and you just lost your best attack cards and maybe only got one or two hits out of it. Um, now you're in trouble because now you're now you're defenseless. So I, I think it's moments of tension um, and drama like that in in this game that make it that make it satisfying. The now, the problem the problem is that there are there are plenty of turns where all you do is right. maneuver and draw, maneuver and draw, and then your opponent maneuvers and draws and maneuvers and, and you're literally just running around each other on this very <laughs> artificial. Uh, depiction of Sherwood Forest, and it doesn't feel like you're in a forest at all. It just it just feels like you're moving from circle to circle and drawing a card. And just now, one of, of the things that Wildlands did is he uh, it, it came with a couple of maps, and they've released I think uh, six more maps. And each of the maps uh, feels unique. Each of them yes. has some sort of unique gameplay tweak that you yes. can uh, introduce. Uh, yes. It sounds like your Sherwood Forest in Unmatched doesn't quite have that uh, amount of personality. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great comparison, Tom, because I think the maps in Wildlands have more character and provide some more strategic possibilities. Like just just the fact that in Wildlands there's some cool height stuff that you can play with. Um, but also just the design, I think, of how Martin Wallace put together the like from marching from this space to this space or this part of the maps connected to this one or this one's kind of a hidden spot and this one's not a hidden spot i think there's more personality in those maps that creates more interesting tactical possibilities uh the maps in unmatched are pretty boring and you know, they, they're like, oh, but you can flip it over and play on this map or when you buy this other set. And I have bought 
one of the, the other sets, the Kabul and Fog set that comes with a couple maps as well. Um, they don't differ from each other substantially. The The maps don't offer any anything cool, like objectives that you need to hold on to, or terrain bonuses, or cool cool little hidden spots, treasure caches, or anything like that. I think the game, the 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 design ethos of this from the beginning was keep it simple. And I appreciate that. I really do. Like there's 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 no additional rules that they think would muck up the design and interfere with you being able to hammer out a game in 20 minutes. Um, but because of that, the maps just aren't that interesting. Are, are the maps strictly artwork? They, they, they're very abstract. Uh, it, it really is just a, a bunch of areas that are a, a similar color, right? Because that's all that matters. Oh, right, right. You mentioned where, before about that. Yeah. Where can I, you know, attack you if I have ranged abilities, right? That's all that matters. No, there's, there's no obstacles. There's no terrain. Um, nothing that complex. The the other problem I have with this, and I'm curious to to hear if you guys agree with me on this. Like, and I think this is a problem that's just fundamental to tactical dueling games like this that have a very limited number of units often like just 1v1 um, and it's especially problematic when you're trying to model melee combat and it's it's this problem of the 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 two the two players basically rush their units towards the center and start beating each other over the head with sticks <laughs> yep. and that's it like that's the game right um and at first you're reading the rule book and you're like, oh, I can maneuver and there's these special abilities and I can do this and that. And then when you sit down and play, now you just run at each other and just beat the shit out of each other. And there's, yeah. there's, it doesn't do anything more than that. And I think it's because board games suffer from, at least the ones that I've run into, suffer from this fundamental problem of not being able to model um, in a fun and interesting way hand-to-hand combat. Um and I'm, I'm thinking of another game that I played years and years ago. This is kind of a, a, a deep cut. This is called Oko, Era of the Asagiri. And it was, a, it was a, a very similar type of game as to Unmatched. You you had some characters. They would sometimes have special abilities. You played on a map. Um, some of them were good at using swords. Some of them good, were at, good at using, like, throwing knives and ninja stars. And... I was just so thrilled to buy this game and to set it up on the table. And then the first time I played it, I was like, this is the worst game ever because you're just rushing at each other and we're just beating each other over the head. And there's nothing interesting emerging from this set of mechanisms. Um, that, that's and, how I feel like about a, a lot of dungeon crawls is I yes, just, just moving yes. a miniature around on a map to punch something's hit points yes. just does nothing for me. And I think yeah. dungeon crawls can get away with it because there's so many things to punch. So you just mm-hmm. punched an orc. Right. Okay, now I can punch a kobold, and now I can punch a goblin, and now I leveled up. Hooray! Right? And it's just that, right? Yeah. But if the point of the game really is the punching, like that the, the punching is supposed to be interesting and exciting, I'm not sure how you do that. Um, I think that's hard to do without having, you know, like at least two units on each side. Yeah. So you can be doing some, you know, cooperative tactics and flanking and things. Correct. And I, you know, I was, I'm thinking of like Dungeons and Dragons, right? Which solves the same problem by, like you said, having a number of creatures you fight, but then also just giving you tons of abilities. Like you stand next to me and you take some damage, or I'm, a, I can slip away with you from you, but I might take some damage when I do. So things that are modifying the core mechanism of walking up to each other and beating each other up. Right. When I, I hate to keep coming back to Wildlands, but it's just the one. Uh, the sort of 1v1 tactical battler that I actually really enjoy. But one of the things that it does, uh, actually, it, this work, this is how every game plays, is you have your characters, and the first person, and whenever you kill someone else's character, you get a little crystal that represents a point, and the first one to five points wins. So you would think, okay, you're playing Wildlands, you just kill the other five of the other guys' dudes, and you win. But... What Wildlands also does is every game begins with five of these crystals that are worth points randomly scattered around the map. So you get points by killing the other guy as well as maneuvering to victory point places and trying to capture them. You know, you have to go there and spend some resources, then you've got that crystal. But there are two ways to get – you could theoretically win Wildlands and never kill 
or even punch another guy's uh, units if you had the crystals in the right place and you managed to maneuver correctly. Um, but it circumvents this idea of, hey, let's just punch each other till one of us is punched the hardest, and then he or she won the game. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, what, uh, what, what's Cobble and Fog? Are those like characters from a cartoon? Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Cobble and Fog has... Uh, Sherlock Holmes, Dracula, um, wait, I gotta, I gotta get all of it. Um, Let me guess, Captain Nemo. But this is actually, this is a good segue, Tom, you helped me here, um, because what I would say that, uh, oh yeah, it's got Jekyll and Hyde, Jekyll and Hyde's cool, actually, and... Fuck, who's the last one? Oh, man. I don't remember. Oh, the Invisible Man. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> of course you forgot him. You can't even see him, right? <laughs> so here's the thing. Like, the the criticisms I've laid on on Matt... Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. I gotta ask. Is there an Invisible Man mini? What is, is it just... What... <laughs> <laughs> how do you even know is he even on the board like how did that what is that he, what a great opportunity for some playful concepts what's going on with invisible man yeah he has like a fog he has fog tokens that you put on the board that he can kind of dart in and out of that's how okay. they model his invisibility right. um but here's yeah here's the thing the the criticisms i've laid it unmatched are really mostly true of the base set and I think what the designer would say, if Davio was here, he'd say, well, if you want a little bit more to this game, a little bit more depth, and if you want to avoid the problem, especially of just two guys rushing at each other and, and punching each other, um, the the expansions, I think, do address this problem significantly. So Cobble and Fog's characters are are more complex. This is These aren't the, the characters I would throw at my 10-year-old right away, right? right. Uh, I would definitely have her start with... Alice or Medusa or King Arthur. Those are the easy ones for sure to warm up with. But um, Dracula and and Sherlock especially, these they're much more interesting and more complex. Ultimately, you are still just trying to beat the shit out of your opponent. It's not like they have created like a new objective system or anything like that. But the way that you play those guys is is quite different. There's a lot of cleverness going on in the expansions. Um, and that's one of those that, that that gives me a certain amount of confidence that they that they know what they're doing with this design, that they're taking it in interesting directions. Right. And I'm sure well, I'm sure that you'll be right on that Buffy the Vampire Slayer one. What, no. what does she get to do, Hassan? <laughs> Now, definitely not Buffy. I have no interest in Buffy whatsoever. But I will say there's some there are some that I'm interested in. Um, I'm kind of interested in the Jurassic Park one for sure. And I'm also interested in um, the Bruce Lee one. I think that one sounds really oh, cool. Yeah. Right. I see but there's now, Little Red Riding Hood as a character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm kind of curious already. Like, what are they? What's her special ability? Like, I, I, I want to know what's in her deck, actually. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do they sell for? Uh, like, uh, you, you basically get four characters in a box. Is that what's going on? Um, only in the big boxes. So there's big boxes, and then there's kind of like halfway boxes. So oh. and those those have two characters. So theoretically, you could buy somebody. Um, the Red Riding Hood versus Beowulf set, I think it is. Beowulf sounds pretty cool, actually. Um, but you could buy somebody that, and then hey, they've got they've got enough for two people to play the game, right? Mm -hmm. But they right. would only have those two characters. Um, and I think those sets are twenty dollars, whereas the four character sets are thirty dollars. I do think they're better value. And mm -hmm. I w I would say if someone bought the first set, which I would recommend because it's a good place to start, and they like the game, I do think Cobble and Fog should be your next purchase. I, I, right. th I think it's an excellent expansion. Mm -hmm. uh, Hassan, have you done the Wargamer thing and sat down and, and set up this game and played against yourself? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, Are you like, serious? Yeah, yeah. When I, when <laughs> I was... When I was a teenager, especially, yeah, I, I mean, I think I've mentioned this before. My older brother is the is the true grognard in the family. He's the one with the massive Avalon Hill war game collection. And when he went to college, um, I took over his room because his bedroom was better than mine, and he left behind all of his war games. So I just started, you know, peeling them out. Ah, right, right. But have you done up. this with Unmatched though? Is what I meant. I, you know that okay so fair question i think that i think that i did when i was first learning it. i just wanted to like play through a session to see how it flowed 
Um, but it's not sa- it's not satisfying right. to do that. No, no. And actually, yeah, that's one thing. Like before you actually like to learn how to teach a game to play through a few turns against yourself is one thing. But when you're doing that because you can't find someone else to play with, like I've, I, that's uniquely right. sad, and I feel terrible for people. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, I've played I've played complex euros against myself just to pass the time. So um, I played Concordia against myself a number of times. Oh God. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's sad or just like that's just the way it is as a gamer nowadays. So I mean, I do. I, that is valuable though, if you're gonna like, especially before you teach people to just see how it feels but yeah i did i i feel sad for you hassan like well my 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 10 year old daughter will come up to me at some point during those games and say um did you win and she'll say very <laughs> sarcastic but the funny thing is you also lost yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, all right so uh unmatched which um i had no idea that was from star wars epic duels wow yeah. Yeah, i didn't either <laughs> well Try to try to find a copy on eBay. See see what saw, you can find. There's one on Amazon for three hundred and sixty dollars. Oh, that's that's, oh. that's good. Wow. All right. <laughs> I think I think the market on Star Wars Epic Duels bottoms once once Unmatched was released. So yeah. Right. Uh, and they've got Marvel characters coming. That's got to mean that uh, Star Wars can't be far behind. Well, that's imagine. that's that's what I've been thinking. Is like I wonder if they're going to fold it back into Star Wars eventually. Yeah, Darth Vader versus versus Beowulf. Uh, Little Red Riding Hood. That's the matchup I think we all want to see. <laughs> Darth Vader and Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. So, uh, Hassan, did you say you are having board gaming this week? Yeah, tonight actually. Hooray! In person. Right. Yeah. What's on the table? Uh, tonight is a path of light and shadow. I think, yeah, yeah. Deck builder, area control. We've never played it before. Um, I bought it during the pandemic on a super sale and sent a sad picture of it to my friends and said, "What the fuck am I doing buying games still?" Um, and we all said, "One day, one day we'll be able to play it." So today's today's that day. Uh, I am torn between whether or not to sell my copy of that or keep it. I've gotten to play it once, uh, mm-hmm. and there's some really cool things in there. But uh, yeah, we'll have to have more talk of that after you've tried. Yeah, it. that might. Well, we'll see how it goes. That might be my topic for next next podcast. All right, Mike, what do you have coming up? Um, I don't know what we're going to play next. I do want. I do want to try more initiative. Um, so I might do a little follow up on that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I'm going to my store today, so we'll see what I pick up. <laughs> What's up with your store, by the way? So we're actually, next week, we're starting in-person gaming again. Hey. Very uh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. So we're we're trying to do some capacity limits. We're still going to make people wear masks. Uh, right. And then we're just going to do kind of online signups for tables and things. And then, you know, some magic events that are kept. So, uh, oh, yeah. I, you know, forget Hassan's game of Paths of Light and Shadow. I want to hear how this goes. That's, yeah. uh, I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited because it's, you know, it's kind of been a shell of its former self without all the buzz of activity in the store the last year right. or so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, this weekend, I think I'm going to try to set up a game of Dune Imperium with a couple of people. That's one of the, It's another game that I bought during the pandemic and have been really sad. I didn't like the solitaire version, so yeah. I'm looking forward to getting to try that. Yeah, yeah so. and you said you, you played it, but just on on virtually and it exactly. was unsatisfying yeah 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 that's the thing is playing things on like vassal uh just makes me i've also been introduced does either of you guys know there was a uh uh i want to say his name is tim fowler i can't be right uh but uh he has a company called fowler games and they have a a, a game called burgle brothers which is a really yeah. cute high school uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, yeah they also yeah. have a, a deck builder called paperback yeah. um which is like scrabble but instead of tiles, you're building a deck of cards with letters. Uh, the follow-up for that, someone just introduced me to it on Board Game Arena, is a game called Hardback, which, oh my <laughs> god, is such a cool deck builder in the, the with, with a kind of a Scrabble vibe to it. So mm. I've been playing that online, and I'm super... That's the value of playing games online, is do I want to own this or not? And I definitely want to own Hardback. I love Hardback. Cool. Uh, Cool. But uh, yeah, so, but not not things like uh, you know, not not to actually play it, but to just be introduced to it. Uh, yes. Playing online. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So we had some Imperial Struggle, uh, initiate the initiative, initiative, it's the initiative, the, right? The initiative, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
What is the board game called? What is that a reference to? Uh, so I'm not sure what the initiative means yet, uh, but the name of the board game that you're playing, that the characters are playing, is actually called The Key. But that's all mm. I know about it so far. Yep. Mm. All right. Um, and also Unmatched. Uh, and there you go. So we will be back in three more weeks to talk about three more games. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Tom Chick. I've been here with Mike Pullman and Hassan Lopez, and we'll see everyone next time. Cheers. Cheers.